Hello, and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. Connected by Life was created to have engaging conversations about important topics that impact physicians and our clinical stakeholders in regards to organ donation and transplantation. Today's episode is the origin of donation after circulatory death, which is part one of two. And today we're gonna be discussing the origin of DCD, which is donation after circulatory death and its impact upon all those that are involved. Today's guest is Joey Boudreaux. Joey's been a nurse for over 25 years and is also LOPA's chief clinical officer. He has been a clinical leader amongst the OPO industry across the country. So Joey, I'm really excited to dive into this a little bit more because, you know, it really intrigues me because in some way it almost feels like it's viewed as a new way of donation. So I wanted to see like if you could give us some thoughts on on why that is. Originally, donation after circulatory death, you know, so donation after hearts after the heart stops beating uh, at, at the time was called non-heart beating donation. Uh, r- originally started uh, in the 50s and the 60s. That was the original way to that, that deceased donation took place. Uh, the first kidney transplants in the 50s and, of course, the, the first liver transplants in the early to mid-60s by uh, Dr. Uh, Thomas Starzl. In the late mid to late 50s, you know, they were, the kidney transplants, they took place after uh, cardiac arrest. And uh, same thing with the liver donations that were, and transplantations that were taking place. Until 1968, uh, Harvard, uh, the ad hoc committee, basically was formed when they realized that there was this level of, uh, that's, that's beyond coma, that, uh, you know, that comatose patients would have that was not just a, a living uh, portion of the brain. It, there, was, there was nothing going on in the, in the brain. So they got together and actually started, uh, wrote up the, the brain death first, brain death guidelines, and then put that into practice. The primary way that donation took place after that was you know, brain death donation, as as most people, you know, commonly think of, of organ donors. Can you share, I think one of the things that is important for, for others to know is like why brain death kind of superseded donation and, and what were the advantages of it? So with brain death, of course, you know, because the patient is, is declared legally and clinically dead by, by neurological criteria or brain criteria, uh, that patient there's no period of of waiting for the heart to stop in that situation because the patient is no longer with us, and uh, and so that became the primary donation route throughout, especially the, throughout the donation boom in the early '80s and uh, and in the '90s. And in fact, it was the the only way until the mid '90s. Uh, it, it, of course, as things often do, started out with a donor family. Uh, a family of, of someone who uh, was passing away uh, or who they were withdrawing support on, and they couldn't understand why he couldn't be an organ donor. And, uh, and you know, that's how it all started, you know, or kind of the rebirth started with the push for why is this not taking place? Why can't we go back and supplement? Because the need for donation had just grown exponentially you know, with the anti-rejection medicines and all the technologies and things that were taking place. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point is is seeing that it was a, a family, you know, a family that was losing a loved one that was able to kind of pioneer the resurgence of 
of donations, something that they were able to receive, uh, and it enabled other families to receive, which should increase the opportunity of donation. Because like you said, you know, I mean, when we started, I remember it was like in the 70,000s of it was seven, around 70,000 people that were in the need of a life-saving organ transplant back, you know, 20 years ago. And now we're looking at over 100, 105,000 people now. So we're seeing the need more and more often. So, you know, can you explain a little bit more on the impact of donation? I think another thing that would be good to bring up is like, what is the number of brain dead patients? You know, it's a very small percentage versus the number of patients that would, uh, you know, be uh, have the opportunity for DCD or donation after circulatory death. In general, someone who's obviously uh, died from a brain death, of course, they have no corneal, no brainstem reflexes and no cognitive function. Someone who would be a candidate for donation after circulatory death, these are, are patients that have oftentimes very near brain death, but they might have one or two brain uh, stem reflexes still there. And either that patient didn't want to live in a persistent vegetative state or the family wanted to withdraw life uh, life support, life-sustaining uh, measures, those are the ones, that's the difference right there, that, you know, that, that those are the ones that can donate organs through uh, donation after circulatory death. And we've seen, so kind of, you know, where, where we were then, uh, when you and I started, we had, at LOPA, had only had one or two DCD donors by that point. And now, 40% of our donors come from DCD authorizations, people, you know, families who have been approached for, for DCD. So imagine, you know, and I, I expect that to continue growing because you mentioned brain death, you know, it's only, a, I've seen statistics saying like up to 2%. Actually here, it's closer to, you know, between 0.5 and 1% of the uh, population here dies uh, of, of brain death. You know, so that number is not, that's just, you know, not a, a large enough resource for, as you mentioned, the 100,000 people who are on a waiting list. So another thing I would like to go back to is you were talking about, you know, a, a person that has suffered a non-survivable injury and a family has made the decision to withdraw care. I think it's important to bring up the fact of the conversation of donation happens after a family has gotten to that point. And that's a great point. Of course, when you and I, again, the early stages of, of educating, you know, hospital staff and physicians and, and, and the public, you know, th that was the clear, I guess, point of, of uh, demarcation was that uh, we were not speaking to families so that they can be withdrawal support and their loved one become an organ donor. The decision is already made uh, for the withdrawal process. So... We only approach a family about donation if their loved one is a candidate after they've made the decision. So that keeps, obviously, the ethical lines very clear uh, that there's no, there's no behind-the-scenes conversations or anything like that. The family decides that they don't want their loved one to live in a persistent vegetative state, and they want to withdraw life-sustaining measures. You know, on those that, like I mentioned, on those that are uh, candidates— we can then offer them possibly after, you know, after, after death, possibly saving one, two, three, you know, even now up to five lives. One of the things that's always resonated with me, and there's so many stories that you and I could probably, we could have a whole podcast just talking about stories. And one of the ones that has always stuck with me was, was on a, a mother who said that 
donation was so important to them because the end was going to be the same, her child dying, but being able to donate, uh, and it was donation after circulatory death, was able to extend the life to others in the meaning. So the end was still the same, but because of donation, it, it, it changed the, their grief journey, and they were able to, to receive something great out of it. And I know that the, you know, they're, they're advocates and volunteers, and, and their son continues to make a difference in this world uh, you know, today and, and every day afterwards. So, Yeah, it's a great point that you bring up because a lot of people think we're just doing this so that someone, the, there's a life that's saved on the other side. But it, there's a lot of far-reaching impacts of donation, especially donation after circulatory death, because in their mind, whenever they're making that decision, it's a final, there's a lot of finality, obviously, in that. And oftentimes, as you mentioned, you know, we hear from families, the fact that we then can provide something positive out of such a tragedy and and a legacy left by their loved one that goes on and on, you know, the impact that it has on that family is immense, and it's uh, you know, and it's something obviously we strive to be able to provide every single family that uh, that should have that opportunity. Well, Joey, I know that we could probably spend another <laughs> another day talking about the process. I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about. We could spend the rest of the day. I know that there's some things that we could cover as far as for allocation and recovery, and you know, even some of the the post support as far as for family care, but. Uh, you know, for this episode, I know that we're going to be leading into the evolution of what DCD has become now, but is there anything else that you want to leave us with today? This impact of donation, whether it's donation after circulatory death, donation after brain death, tissue donation, eye donation, donation for research, we get to work with these families and, and get to meet and get to know so many of these families for such a long time. Their grief journey is everlasting. And oftentimes we're, uh, you know, there side by side with them. And uh, it is just, it's so wonderful of an opportunity, again, through something that has been just a tragedy, sometimes the biggest tragedy in their lives that they're trying to walk through. And, and the fact that we can offer more ways for donation and more opportunities for our family support to provide uh, grief counseling and or provide you know grief help uh, to them is is you know that's something that I'm proud of and and I think you know most at, at Lopa are proud of so you know we'd like to as many families as we can talk to and and have conversations and support in the acute phase and after you know that's that's certainly uh, we see it as as a benefit yeah it is definitely an honor I mean it's a, it's an honor to be a part of of those families' lives. It's also an honor to use this platform to continue to share their stories. So thank you for being a part of it, Joey. I look forward to talking with you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor at any time at registerme.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. And always remember... You're a light worker. Keep shining. 
This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. Our production assistant is Chandra Williams. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.